Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Today we're talking about toxic Christianity, in quotes, and my guest Mark Karras will explain what he means by that term, toxic Christianity. It is, it's his term. Obviously, I don't believe that all Christianity is toxic, or else why would this podcast exist in the first place? But some expressions of Christianity are increasingly appearing to many of us paying attention to be unhelpful at best and abusive and damaging at worst. And one thing that I'm adamant about on this show is that there is indeed a variety of Christian expressions. I can't count how many times I've heard people's stories include something like, I never even knew there were multiple atonement theories, but as it turns out, there are. So maybe some of these claims that Mark will mention, we can let them go and look for alternate views. Now, a couple of those eight that we're going through, just taken at random here, Human beings are primarily intrinsically sinful and evil. And another is, in the end times, creation is going to burn. So who really cares about taking care of it now? By way of introduction, Mark Karras is an author, marriage and family therapist, and adjunct professor at Point Loma Nazarene University in San Diego, which, by the way, is a conservative school. And I think that's worth mentioning. This is not just a couple liberals out to, uh, I don't know, set fire to the conservative establishment here. All right, enough of that. Let's get into it. Just to set up this conversation, uh, you posted, it looks like back in July, a sort of an infographic of, of 25 
overt and covert themes from your experience of Christianity that you have found toxic over the years. Hmm. Uh, and this got quite a bit of reaction and I saw it and I thought, oh, this is interesting. This is kind of really good episode fodder. So what I did is I reposted that on my own Facebook page and on the You Have Permission uh, Facebook group for patrons. And I said, hey, which one of these would you guys like me to talk about with Mark? And so I narrowed it down through that feedback to eight of those 25. Our plan is do a little bit of setup on what you mean by toxic. You know, what are the lenses you're looking through here where you came to these items? And then... We're going to get through as many of those eight as we can in 90 minutes. <laughs> and maybe if we don't make it all the way through, we'll, we'll do a little bit longer and, and have it for patrons or something like that. So does that sound good? Sounds great. Thanks, Dan. So I think before we get too into that, I, we, it'd be good to hear a little bit about your own faith story, kind of where you're at theologically, et cetera, et cetera, just so people can kind of place you for their own. What's the word I'm looking for? Yeah, so people can put me in a box and be able to label me and make sense of me. Is that right, Dan? <laughs> that would be the negative way of phrasing it. What I would, okay. the positive way would be so that they have a better data point. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, of course. I'm just in, in their own ongoing uh, discernments. Yeah, yeah, of course. So very long. Uh, what I would also consider a powerful testimony, but I'll shorten it to this kid who grew up in a very uh, crazily dysfunctional family, drugs, violence, gang violence. A stepfather was in the Pagans motorcycle gang. Uh, eventually, a lot of crazy stuff happened. Mom died of a drug overdose. Stepdad's in prison. Younger brother, mentally ill. He'll be in prison for the rest of his life for murder. But didn't know Jesus, didn't have a framework of understanding faith and no spirituality. And it really was at the age of 21, of course, we're fast-forwarding here, when, yeah, when Jesus took the wheel. Um, I mean, it's just a profound encounter with God just before that, really wanting to take my own life, suicidal. I was also a cutter, very depressed, hopeless. And yeah, I had a profound experience with God. I was in a field all by myself, and my twin brother was uh, got saved about, I think, a year and a half Two years before I did, he would tell me about Jesus. and But yeah, a lot of other things that happened. But ultimately, it was a really powerful encounter with the love of God, which as crazy and dysfunctional uh, and toxic that Christianity can be, I think it's that pivotal moment in other subsequent moments with kind of experiential encounter that as someone who likes to deconstruct and think, I can't think myself through this in a kind of secular, psychologized lens. It was truly a very powerful encounter for me that kind of helped me put the stake in the ground with with who God is. Yeah. And uh, from there, went into Oneness Pentecostal Church, very cultish experience, got out of that. After four years, went to a uh, Christian and Missionary Alliance school, which was very uh, powerful and healing for me. And then got ordained into Southern Baptist Church, far from Southern Baptist. I worked in a Korean Presbyterian church for a while. So as of now, I'm not sure I can be labeled, but it's definitely yeah. still, you know, still hanging with Jesus, still consider the, the Bible the sacred text of myself and the community that I'm a part of. 
That's sort of the sacred text that we hold dear and look to for understanding life and spirituality. Of course, much other texts as well. But so, yeah, still consider myself a Christian. And, and uh, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at right now. Yeah, it probably would have been helpful for me to say the day after you also posted an infographic. Here are some themes and truths from Christianity that I've found beautiful over the years. The way I'd like to think of it is it's not yeah. that all of Christianity is toxic, but some parts of lived Christian experience are toxic, and mm-hmm. we could call that mm-hmm. stuff toxic Christianity. Of course, people will quibble and disagree about what exactly is toxic, but some of it is. Yeah, and I think it's important in this conversation, Dan, too, is this is what I consider toxic. You know, even when right. we say we, you know, I can't I can't put myself in the grand category of a, a you know, capital W, we, or the church. This is my experience what right. I have found now, granted, there's a lot of other people who find much of what I talk about to be toxic. But as you know, the church is is very large, and th- the best thing to do in conversations is not globalize, but say, "Hey, this is my experience. Let me share this with you. This is what I've been struggling and wrestling with." Yeah. So you got some pushback on your own post, and and you got it on some of my posts as mm-hmm. well, or on both of my posts that. Uh, some of the language here is pretty strong. Some people accused you of sort of m- some of these making straw men. Uh, mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's the idea that God is, of course, different than these particular lived expressions of Christianity. Yeah. So even th- so they you know, what I'm saying like they might be straw men. And an example of a, a possible straw man would be God uses Hitler-esque violence to discipline those hmm. who are disobedient. Now, yeah. I mean, I kind of. Uh, that's not one of the ones we're going through, by the way, so we can, we can use that for now. I mean, right, right, right. I would I would say it is kind of Hitler-esque in a sense, but I could also see someone going, hey, that's totally an unfair way of saying this. God is not, God is not a person. Hitler was a person. You know, whatever. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, my phrasing is strong. Uh, I mean, it's obviously worded to evoke and jolt readers, but such is yeah. the nature of impassioned writing. But as far as some being straw man propositions... I could be guilty as charged. I guess we'll have to look and see if I'm intentionally misrepresenting and exaggerating a position that no one is really making or engaging in a straw man argument. But like I said, what is important in this conversation is that this is what I found to be uh, toxic, right? Another person's toxic themes may be very different, but I'll tell you one thing. We're not talking about divine violence, but I am so passionate about that, and I find there's no exaggeration between a God who, uh, you know, floods planet the planet, killing all kinds of uh, creatures, including humans and children and babies, and kills Egyptian babies and commands people to be maimed and uh, burns people alive, uh, you know, and commands people to be stoned, etc. So I don't think it's too far off to say that's Hitler-esque kind of behavior. But I, I don't can disagree. S- I can see why... You know, let's say, uh, I, as a therapist, I'm always trying to put myself in people's shoes. You know, there could be a difference between a, what they would consider a holy God who is God and we are not, and God being holy and us being sinful, you know, no good creatures. God could do what God wants to do when God wants to do it. I can see, okay, then we can't compare God and Hitler because Hitler isn't God. So, I, I, okay, I can maybe understand but at the end of the day, I'm still calling that Hitler-esque violence. Yeah. I mean, the, the only reason we're not doing that one is that I just did a really long episode on 
Old Testament violence, Canaanites in particular. So that's like, I don't know, yeah, six yeah. or seven episodes back or right. uh, from the day we're recording this anyway. So if, if you're new to this show and that sounds interesting, then after this, you should go find <laughs> that one about divine violence. Mm-hmm. Um, just didn't want to double dip so, so soon. So um, I guess the last thing to talk about is just when you say, well, and, and by the way, <laughs> by the way, certainly someone is making all the arguments on this list. I mean, and it's not like they're necessarily mainstream theologians or pastors are making all of them, some of them. Uh, but that doesn't mean that no one's making them. And you you are, I think, wise to frame it as this has been my experience in Christianity, which is mm-hmm. different than saying here are the 25 toxic things from the gospel coalition or, you know, or something like that. Yeah, right. It's like, yeah. we have a lot of experiences and, and we pick up on stuff that's implicit and explicit. And mm-hmm. it's good to recognize what those messages are. That's right. I think it makes for helpful dialogue, right? It's not me making these big globalizing statements and because life is so much more complicated and messy than that. But at the yeah. end of the day, can we talk about, hey, what do you find toxic? Oh, what what do you find? Oh, that's not what I find toxic. But let me understand why you don't, right? And that's the beautiful, you know, piece of, of dialogue, which is a fine art that can be missed in these days for sure. So what do you mean by toxic, though? Let's let's get into that a little bit before we start going through the list. Yeah, toxic. Um, so for some of these themes, uh, beliefs, or doctrinal statements, I... I simply mean that they're harmful in some way. I mean, like in some way, shape or form, these toxic beliefs will be harmful or are harmful with our relationships with God's self and others. I know it's a big claim to make, but as a therapist and ordained pastor, the health of relationships is what matters most to me. So, so for me, toxic and even sin and I mean sin and sin as anything that fractures or wounds or distorts or disrupts relationships. And I think that life and spirituality should be primarily about the, the health of a relationship. So toxic simply means unhelpful or worse, harmful or really, really toxic that gets in the way of deep connection with self, God, and others. I love that. So we will... We'll go through that specifically, that lens of how does it get in the way of our yeah. relationship with God, mm-hmm. ourself, and others for each of these. Let's let's go down the list. So uh, we've got eight of these, and we'll get through as many as we can. <laughs> uh, the first one, which I think you have it as number one, and there seems to be sort of a logical reason to have it as number one, because a lot flows from it. Mm. Human beings are primarily intrinsically sinful and evil. How does this get in the way of relationship with self, God, and others. Wow, this is huge. So for me, I like how I preface it for me, uh, preface it, uh, the implicit or impl- explicit teaching that human beings are primarily intrinsically sinful and evil is toxic because it infuses people with shame. And I'm sure shame will be a link to many of the themes, doctrines, or ideas we'll be discussing today. But shame is that sort of that undefined heaviness that sort of slackens the free flow of love and grace in people's lives. So whereas guilt is an experience I have maybe after I've done something wrong and in the best sense has the relationship that has been hurt in mind. When I think of shame, it's the experience that we are something wrong. We suck. We're no good. We're pieces Mm. of garbage. God doesn't like us. We're tainted and flawed. 
And we know from the research that shame rears its ugly head in much of human suffering we see today. Addictions and depression and eating disorders, PTSD, and so many other issues that negatively affect human beings. So the bottom line is people do what they believe they are. If you're constantly reminding people of how small, pathetic, and sinful they are, they're going to internalize such an idea and act accordingly. If you believe you're a piece of garbage, you're going to do what pieces of garbage do. That's the toxic So that's interesting. Yeah. That's interesting because on the one hand, you could argue, look, it doesn't matter what people do with a doctrine. If a doctrine is true, it is our responsibility to teach it. And what you're kind of – you're bringing in a wrinkle, which is – Psychologically speaking, Mm. if you repeat something enough to people, it will change their behavior. Now, if that is a sort of law of the mind, a a psychological law, if you will, Mm -hmm. then that has a bearing on doctrines. It it seems like it's it's, it's almost like a good fruit, bad fruit sort of a thing that we actually have to take into account if we're considering if something is true or not. If that's the way God made us, such that repeating something will change us then it's not simply a, well, I've divined the scriptures accurately or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we know from the study of sort of neuroplasticity and the, the, the brain can change that we are actually creating neuronal connections in the brain that can foster, you know, loving, kind, compassionate, empathic behaviors, good moral citizens or moral, um, you know, kingdom of the kingdom of God, or or we can do the opposite. And what I've studied also in my third book is that the notion of sort of this um, humans are primarily intrinsically sinful and evil business, it traumatizes folks into adulthood. For example, mm-hmm. there, there's a study, uh, Breaking Up with Jesus, a phenomenological exploration of the experience of deconversion from an evangelical Christian faith. And there's other research articles that talk about these people who are told since they were kids that they were evil, no good, that they needed Jesus to save them from an eternal fire, a tormenting place because God is so angry and pissed off at us. And that hold that for decade after decade, my goodness, that messes with a person's brain. And I don't think yeah. pastors have understood the ramifications of such a, a harmful teaching. And we'll get into, you know, well, what's my alternative? We'll get into that. But so for yeah. me, that's sort of what, what's, what's toxic about it. Yeah. I'm going to get a link to that article, that journal article from you. I want to read it and I'm going to po- post it in the show notes. Yeah. Uh, if anybody else wants to read that research, that stuff I find is very helpful. So I think we could keep talking about the toxicity by also getting into what the traditional argument is, because I don't think there's any way to really separate out, you know, what what a pastor or an author or a scholar thinks they're doing from the reasons that they think it's true. You know, yeah. it's not this is not one that comes mostly from malice, I think, from people. This is more like an honest consequence of theology. Whereas some of these there's like there's obviously some pettiness or some sexism or whatever, you know, yeah. baked in. This one this one's not that way. It's it's uh I think I think most people who teach that human beings are primarily intrinsically sinful and evil, most of them are doing it in good faith and don't really know what those consequences are. So 
what is the traditional argument yeah. for this? And do you agree that it's this is mostly taught in good faith? Well, let me start with the good faith. I I believe that yes, it can be, but it, it comes from a place of deep faith, but it also can come from a place of deep shame. It can in, in other sure. words, you know, it can come from a place of because I as a pastor believe that about myself, I'm more prone to to teach those kinds of things with gusto. So, yeah. it's it's complex, but I I think you're right. I want to give people uh, you know the benefit of of goodwill here. So, and I think there is. So, for example, the traditional argument is well, I mean, we're talking about really the concept of original sin, and we're mm-hmm. sinners due to Adam's sin, and then subsequently due to our own. But there are well worn passages that contribute to this doctrine, but also get into sort of what can be called worm theology. So, for example, I mean, I don't know how many times, especially being in a Pentecostal church, a Southern Baptist church, Isaiah 64, 6, our righteousness is as filthy rags, right? And, of course, it's talking about what women use to clean, uh, you know, after a period. And then, of course— Menstrual rags. Menstrual rags, right. And then Jeremiah, uh, I think was 17, 9, um, the heart being deceitful above all things, Right. So God, and and sort of the implicit teaching is God is so utterly holy that we humans are nothing but filthy, impure, evil, disobedient, no good sinners deserving of the wrath of God. I mean, that's pretty much how it was framed to me in my experience. So then, of course, you get into the whole doctrine of hell. I mean, humanity is not destined to go to hell because we're worthy of love and imbued with intrinsic value. I mean, we're right. going to hell to be tormented forever because we're sinful and evil in some way, as, as some people say. So I think there's... Yeah, I was just yeah. thinking it's it's part and parcel of your standard gospel presentation in like Baptist and Reform circles, which is yeah. that we are, by our nature, deserving of eternal hellfire. Now, if you like, <laughs> if you think that uh, most or a lot of people are going to eternal conscious torment, then... Your anthropology, your view of humans is going to have to reflect that to be even slightly logically consistent, right? So (laughs) you're going to – you will end up – this is a consequence in a lot of ways of the strong belief in hell. Yeah, and I don't – like you said, I think people – I don't think they think about the the consequences psychologically – they think, you know, listen, right. I, I'm, I'm preaching the word of God. God is holy. I'm telling people the truth. But as many of us found out, and including in a lot of the qualitative research, this isn't good for people's hearts, minds, and souls. Now, what gets interesting, Dan, is there's things that are true that can feel discomforting, right? There, are Like, for example, you know, love, and we get into the nuances of love. That can feel a little jarring to our soul that wants to maybe be a little selfish and, you know, I, I don't want to serve the poor and I, I don't want to give people, serve people. You know, that can feel a little discomforting. So sure. truth can be like, you know, heaping hot coals on people's heads. Truth can be loving, but it can also feel discomforting. But this kind of stuff that's given to children, I yeah. am not a fan of it. Uh, this one is, I mean, you could, we could do 10 hours on, on yeah. this particular issue, but let, let's, let's keep going in the interest of time. I, I'll throw out a still orthodox alternate understanding 
Mm-hmm. This is from Eastern Orthodox theology. They call it ancestral sin sometimes mm-hmm. instead of original sin. And the view is just simply all human beings sin, period. Mm-hmm. And it does not include uh, deserving hell, but you still get all the basics of redemption, of forgiveness of sin, and you just – it's just not Augustinian. It's just not based on Augustine's understanding of original sin being transmuted through sex, down generations. It's just like, no, if you're a human, you will sin and you mm-hmm. need forgiveness. <laughs> yeah. Boom. <laughs> and that seems quite a bit less toxic to me. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, man, our, our story and how we share things, our narratives are so important. I mean, we could start in Genesis 3 and look at the fallen, sinful, and cursed human beings whom God was mad at, right? Or we could start with Genesis 1, um, which, you know, talks right. about the, the beautiful and good of God's creation. But I also think, and I, I'm still flushing this out, but if we take evolution seriously, there was never a time where there was this notion of a perfect, non-chaotic, non-sinless place. Yeah, 100%. Right? The, the, the old, the standard Greek philosophical model of perfection a la plato's forms Mm -hmm. and then fall from grace and then we'll return to perfection in the end it does not work anymore given what we know about evolution and geological time scales basically right and so what is the gospel in in say to that what is the notion of original sin when you think about humans in all of life has always been unfolding with these crazy life and death um, processes that humans were yep. never in a perfectly sinless state, but it gets interesting that maybe original sin came where there were to the conscious sentient hominids where God lured them right. to the beautiful, good and true. And at the point that which they said, no, we're going to do our own thing. Maybe we could talk about original sin in that context. But other than that, I'm I'm not a fan of the, yeah, I yeah. don't think it works. Original sin meaning, if you take it to mean there was one sin, a first original sin that then gets passed down, it doesn't work anymore with evolution. Or it does, but you could posit it, but you don't know anything about it. You don't know when it was. Uh, not everybody alive today is descended from that person, so it doesn't really matter in that sense. Yeah, yeah. What you can say is something more like with greater capacity – for will and choice and options comes the inevitability that we will make some choices that are selfish, that are not loving, and that an amoeba can't make those choices. You know, probably a plant can't make those choices. A dog or a two-year-old maybe can make those choices. And that's where we're, and then, and a fully, uh, a a brilliant 150 IQ, 50-year-old with a billion dollars Man, can they make those choices, right? And so right, it's like right. – so it's just with greater capacity and greater resources come greater fallout, basically, of those bad sinful choices. That's right. And and these are good thoughts about anthropology. But notice the view of God in both approaches, right? If we're going to stay with the old traditional model, God is going to be the uber holy who can't stand sin and must curse them. As opposed to the other one with an evolutionary understanding of humankind and the tricky brain that has evolved. I'm imagining that God has always been 
playing with mud pies. He's always in the the dirt right. and the mix of it. And it's not that God's so uber holy. It's actually God's so imminent involved in all of it. And God's okay with that. Yeah. 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 That's good. Okay. Let's, let's move to the next item. So item number two, God's truth can only be found in the biblical text. Why is that toxic? I think it's toxic uh, for maybe I'll stick with two reasons. It's toxic because it encourages an us and them mentality. It therefore divides Mm. and pits us against other people. It creates more division between us. But it also is toxic because it robs us from the beauty of what other religions may have to offer us. Yeah, so I I actually have a note to combine this with another one of yours Mm -hmm. that says other religions are demonic and have nothing to offer Christians. Ah, uh Uh, Mm -hmm. but there, but you actually don't have to go. I mean, there's two ways you could talk about God's truth can only be found in the Bible. One is, do we learn from God? uh, Do we learn about the Christian God outside the Bible, regardless? And I think the answer is emphatically yes. And then Mm -hmm. the other one is, could we learn about God? Uh, through other religions as well. And I also would say yes, but that's maybe not quite as obvious to a lot of Christians. Yeah, absolutely not. I mean, being in my tradition, there was a deep sense that, you know, um, Christianity is the only true religion. And if it if it was literally demons who came up with the ideas of these other religions and right. started them to distract and keep people away from the truth, then you better still stay the heck away from them. Yeah, exactly. That one is, that's so interesting. So, so these are really combined. So toxic means gets in the way of relationship between with God, self and others. Now you could imagine a devil's advocate, mm-hmm. <laughs> wrong, uh, wrong phrase huh. to use given this one saying, look, a person's relationship with God is served best by only looking for truth in the Bible. I don't believe that, but I can imagine someone saying that and finding that to be pretty convincing. Hmm. How would you respond to that? Well, first, can we can we empathize with that argument? So just to stay there for a minute, I mean, right, so it's sort of understood that if God have only, has only truly spoken through the Hebrew prophets and New Testament saints, and if God has only fully revealed himself in and through Jesus, the exclusive property of Christian religion, then really what do other religions have to offer? But I can see scriptures, right? And people would point out, for example, 1 Timothy 4, right? The Spirit clearly says that in the later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. There, so there is sort of a biblical precedent here of, hey, there are things taught by demons that are demonic in origin or that which is contrary to the beauty, love, and goodness of Jesus. Stay the heck away from them. And of course, there's others, right? In, even in 1 John uh, 4, I think, you know, every spirit that acknowledges Jesus has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge, acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. So it asks us to test the spirits. So first, I want to give some understanding. Yeah, I get it, right? The, the, it, it makes sense to... Totally, yeah. But I, I don't... Uh, I have a little different thoughts and an alternative understanding there, right? Uh, I, I think there's wisdom in testing and discerning whether teachings in other religions are demonic or anti-God or really anti-love. Geez, I, I mean, I, I think we need to do that in our own religion. So it's why right. why is the test ideas right in other faiths in other in scriptures? Does it does it 
you know, does it smell and taste like the fruit of the Spirit? Do they absolutely contradict some of the core teachings of Christ? That's good. But none of the teachings of Christ tell us to absolutely stay away from all religions and that anything found within any other religion except the one he came to start is simply demonic. But he didn't come to start a religion anyway. But there's no... There's nothing that says to stay away from absolutely every religion and that no truth can be found in them. I just don't find that. Yeah. So this one is really interesting because for me, this gets to one of the kind of fault lines between where I am now and more like how I was raised. And um, I think that in order to believe that those verses should be taken at face value and that they apply you know, sort of equally to all other faith traditions that don't include in their doctrinal statements that Jesus of Nazareth is the second person of the Trinity, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have bought that at some point, but I'm at a point now where it's like, uh, first of all, it's not clear that that's what the text means. And second of all, even if it did, uh, since I'm not an inerrantist about scripture anymore, since I don't think that the Bible has no errors, it, even if it did say that, I would say, well, that is that would have seemed very clear to early Christians that like they had found this incredible revelation. Mm-hmm. Um, they also were living in a much smaller world mm-hmm. than we are today, and there at the time that you know that this stuff's going around, there's almost no parts of their world that aren't that don't have the gospel preached in some way. And now we're <laughs> it's just different. We are aware now that like entire Asian civilizations long before Christ were developing religious beliefs and building these civilizations and it's just, and then also kind of not to get too in the weeds, but basically postmodern theory about a single meta narrative that everybody Mm -hmm. understands if they just have ears to hear it doesn't really work. That's not how brains work. It's not how cultures work. So So all these reasons to sort of doubt that, even if that's what the text does say, which I'm not sure that it does. And I think that's what you're, kind of arguing is that it's it's definitely not clear that it does teach that. Uh but this one is this one goes deep for me. All kinds of fault lines. Yeah. I mean it's interesting. I mean obviously there's a concern. I I don't know if you mentioned the uh the dynamic of persecution too, right? Being so persecuted, mm. there is a tendency to you know keep things to yourself as a community and to sort of we're in trouble. I mean, we're dealing with the threat brain and so everything becomes sort of an us and them sort of mentality with uh, that kind of continual threat brain activation. But what I find is that even in first Timothy four, the one that I mentioned, like some will abandon the faith following deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. In, in the verse three there, it says they forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, etc. And it's almost like, the the demonic teaching was telling people to narrow it in. In other words, they were interesting, for, right? So they they were saying, "Hey, you think you're you're um, doing the 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 Christ like thing here by telling people not to do this, not to do this, forbid people doing this." That was what was demonic. So it was a closing hmm. down instead of an opening up, which I find really interesting in a passage like that. Yeah, that's really interesting. So let's go to. Uh what are what is the alternative uh understanding of this and 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 is it orthodox small o uh or are we going beyond historic traditional christianity here you know i think i i touched on it dan and that is the alternative is to 
you know, there's wisdom in testing and discerning. And there, there's wisdom in, in looking, hmm, is this demonic or, you know, anti-love? And so that's good. I, I'm not saying, hey, let's let's just, it's full-on cafeteria Christianity here uh, or full cafeteria spirituality. Pick whatever the heck you want. It doesn't matter. But I think for those who consider themselves Christians, I think, uh, you know, I'm open to a little bit of smorgasbord here. But there's certain things that when you're a Christian, I think the biblical text becomes the primary sacred text, and one cannot get away from Jesus, right? I think that is sort of the line where Christians, if you're a Christian, typically it has something to do with following Christ and his teachings. Yeah, that's what makes it Christianity and not something else. Yeah. Right. I mean, if you're following the teachings of, of, uh, you know, um, Allah and you're a Muslim, you can't say, well, you know, you're a Buddhist, right? There's, it's yeah, a, or we don't really need the Quran for that. <laughs> right. Yeah. But yeah. so I guess the point for me is we don't have to be so threat-based. We can have dialogical conversations with people of other faiths. We can learn from other people. We can grow from people in other traditions. And at the same time, we can hold to what we hold dear, right? It doesn't have to be an either-or. It's, it's sort of an open, right. expansive, this is what our community believes. And, oh, this is what your community believes. Let's get, let's talk. Well, how is that impacting your community that you live in? Well, we never thought of that as Christians, but that's a beautiful way to serve our community. Can we, can we talk a little bit more on how you do such a thing? I would love that kind of, that kind of uh, ecumenical conversations as opposed to yeah. just a foundation of, no, you're, you're simply demonic and I have all the truth. Yeah. I mean, so people, not everybody is going to consider what the Catholic Church teaches to be uh, in bounds or non heretical. But since the early 60s in Vatican II, the official stance of the Catholic Church towards other religions is we should seek to learn from them and understand them well. So they have a very open stance. That is a almost 60-year-old standard yeah. uh, there. Uh, I would certainly call that small O orthodox. Um, <laughs> there's nothing in the Bible that says we shouldn't learn from other religions. And then I also, I just want to, I want to spend a minute on, there's the other way of taking this, God's truth can only be found in the biblical text, like science. Uh, mm. Like if we are really renewing our minds, if we are growing in knowledge of God, and if God created this world, then whatever we learn in science, which is always provisional, mm-hmm. we don't ever know it 100% for certain, other than some basic math propositions, uh, we are learning about God. We are learning about the world that God created, and that's not in the Bible either. So, you know, when we're talking about, you know, you mentioned that journal article where we're interviewing people rigorously mm-hmm. uh, in wise ways, and we're looking for patterns in people's responses to things, that's social science. And that is a way of learning about the world that God created. Oh, man, absolutely. I I think what really I used to hold, because I was in the one one Hispanicostal church, they ingrained it in us. Like, all you need for life and godliness can be found in the scriptures. That is it. And so, but I, it was this weird question. And I said to myself, well, the vaccine for polio isn't in the Bible, and that has to that has <laughs> right. to be good. That has to be a, a beautiful blessing, right? Um, the knowledge that it took to get to that sort of vaccine. 
So then, then I remember reading sort of Arthur Holmes, I think was a philosopher that said, all truth is God's truth. And then I said, you know what? That makes so much more freaking sense to me. Wherever truth can be found, that's God's truth. And it doesn't have to be solely found within the biblical text. And as a therapist, there are some people, newthetic counselors, who believe in the scriptures in that way, that that's their main text, that's their main go-to uh, to use in the therapeutic process. So it's a similar vein of thinking. Yeah, I mean, they can call themselves therapists, but they can't be licensed by the American Psychological Association because they're not using uh, the the best science available to them. Yeah, but I mean, there there are those who go get their degrees, get licensed according to the state, and then continue to primarily use right. nothetic counseling. But yeah, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, uh, I'm in the middle of my law and ethics class in my, uh, in my PsyD program. So I'm thinking along those terms. Nice. Um, well, let's take a little break. And when we come back, we are going to talk about two items that are about the body, uh, it, bodily desires and emotions. So I do run a Patreon campaign for this show. And basically, it's a way to support the show financially if you really appreciate what's going on here. And in exchange for that support, there are two main perks. One is two patron-exclusive episodes every month. I'm about to play a clip from the most recent one. And the other is inclusion in the You Have Permission Facebook group, which is increasingly uh, really just an awesome community of uh, like-minded but also diverse uh, viewpoints and, and people. Um, it's really kind of blossomed into something very cool. Uh, but regarding that first perk, those extra episodes, here is a clip from the most recent one. This is my chat with Evan Rosa. Evan is a California native who for a long time was working at Biola, doing a bunch of their sort of public-facing thought work and media work. And now he has been poached by Yale to work with uh, the theologian Miroslav Wolf on a new media project there. Um, he's awesome. If we lived in the same town, we would hang out all the time. But I met him this summer for the first time at Fuller Seminary. And uh, I was able to chat with him for about an hour about a, a lot of stuff, about working at different, you know, at different universities and in different sort of thought and religion climates. We did a little bit of shop talk about uh, writing interviews and even a little bit of gear. We talked about his growing up Catholic and becoming evangelical at one point, and then rediscovering mainline Christianity, all that stuff. So here's kind of one three or four minute extended clip of my chat with Evan to give you a sense of what we talked about. One thing I need to keep reminding myself is that there are just different levels of intellectual curiosity in the world. And I'm, yeah, sur yeah. I'm surrounded by enough people, uh, and people email me regularly, <laughs> or they'll text with me if they've listened to an episode. Uh, and a lot of the people that I self-sort to hang out and be friends with, right, are people who are interested in these ideas and and do kind of need, in some sense, these ideas to work. But that's probably not most people. And it's something that I worry about. I don't know if you worry about this as well in, in making in making podcasts and, and other communications product oh, of yeah. like, yeah, if that. the wrong person reads or hears this, it's like maybe not going to be helpful to them at all. You know, it, it, it might, at least in the short term, be harmful. Um, yeah. It might cause a kind of a personal crisis that really is is 
doesn't matter. They don't need to have it. Um, and that's interesting. And there's a difference between speaking one on one with someone. There are things I don't say to certain people I know that don't need this kind of faith crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and making something that is publicly available, anybody who chooses to listen to it or read it can. I, I don't know. Have, what do you think about that <clears throat> question? Yeah, I think there's a temptation. First of all, like like our context here is one in which um, it's extremely tempting if you are if you find yourself in an idea space. If you find yourself with any kind of um, political, religious, or moral ideas happening, it's very tempting to um, identify for yourself, oh, I'd like to have a platform. And of right. course, we we are all so caught up in, um, in each other's giving and taking or receiving attention, right? And how much attention we give to certain people and not to others, including ourselves, um, the reason I start there is um, ultimately like there's a desire to say something meaningful and have a real conversation with real people because um, that's how I think of the goods of reflection bearing their own little fruit, right? Is um, It's when, when I'm actually connecting with you, I'm understanding what you're saying and you're understanding me and we have an opportunity for a mutual shared understanding um, and growth. But a lot of people are making things just for the sake of being popular, um, or and both famous. are happening at the same time. I mean, of course, you can I have, have both. I, you don't, I don't want. You don't want to say that they're mutually exclusive. I have noticed in myself since I was a kid, like a kind of an exhibitionist quality, uh, not in the clinical sexual sense, but like <laughs> you know, I'm an open book. Like I will, I want to make, yeah. I want to record songs with my friends, and I want everybody to hear them and comment on them. Uh, yeah, you check can, this out. People can ask me anything in a public group, and I will usually answer it pretty forthrightly. Like, I like attention. I'm a verbal processor. Yeah. And I like processing in front of people, and I like the feedback, and and I'm sure I like, yeah, like I like the attention. You describe me as well. I just described you. I feel the exact same way, and it's always been that way. And I think there's one level where there's a kind of innocence uh, and integrity that comes along with that. But we're also in a space where that's it's it can also be heavily exploited, um, or if not heavily exploited, it's just an afterthought about. Like, so your concern was, you know, uh, are are we raising genuinely helpful conversations for the right kind of audience? And I think that's that's like a interesting space to be in, right? Because um, of course, everyone's the largest audience they can, right? In part because. Um, uh, we have this kind of faulty impression that more is better. Um, but you want to extend what you think is good and you want to get messaging that you believe in further out there. That's um, our model of influence. Um, but I think to embrace what you just said is to also embrace the idea of smaller communities and making media that is intentionally meant to be consumed by a smaller niche audience. Um, And I think that can be important too, because often that's where real quality comes. That's where a different model of influence and a different model of growth and purpose can be found. So if that sounded interesting to you, or if you are interested in becoming a patron for other reasons, head to patreon.com slash Dan Koch, K-O-C-H, 
or you have permissionpod.com and click become a patron. I really appreciate it. Okay, so Mark, now we've got two in a row that are both about sort of our physical bodies. Hmm. The first one is the body and its desires are inherently wicked. Uh, how does this get in the way of relationship to God, self, and others? I think um, any notion or hint that our bodies and its our desires are inherently wicked is toxic because it it encourages us to hate, despise, or become suspect of aspects of ourselves. And nothing good comes from hating or despising aspects of ourselves. And when I say ourselves, I mean who we are. And whether we like it or not, we are people who have bodies. We are people who have desires for sensuality, for pleasure, for delight and enjoyment. So it's another subtle doctrine or teaching that infuses us with shame. So here we have shame again. And it's sort of a form of Gnosticism, which sort of says that the only good about us is our spirit. Right, precisely because God is spirit, and our spirits yeah. are housed in these sort of vile containers of our bodies, and one day we'll be free of this sick uh, bodies, and our spirits will be free with God. So, when children grow up to be adults, and sex, orgasm, sensuality is so interlaced with shame that they can't even enjoy sex with their partner, or have so much anxiety around their bodies and pleasure, then to me that is toxic, and that is a problem. Can I just say a funny, I just, uh, Leonard Sweet, he has a new book coming out. Ring, I think it's called Rings of Fire. I got an early copy, but I, he had this one one quote. I love it. He says, why is the Hindu religion known for 1,500 sex positions and the Christian religion for one? <laughs> I, I, I thought that was great. Yeah, that is really funny. <laughs> so... It, the body and its desires are inherently wicked. I think that this phrase no longer makes sense given what we know about our bodies now. I mean, I think that a kind of hard dualism, uh, we have a soul and it is in a physical body and those two things are completely distinct from each other does not make sense anymore. Like our mind which is some part of what we would have called our soul in biblical times, mm-hmm. uh, arises from our brain. That's it's right. not the same necessarily as our brain, uh, because I think that mind is what's called an emergent property. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, you can, I just mentioned this in, in an intro the other day uh, to an episode, you know, you can run an IQ test without ever consulting a neurologist, right? So our mind is its own kind of funk thing, but it comes from our brain. And if you put, chemicals into someone's brain through medication. It will change the way that they're, they consciously experience things. It just can't be the case that everything that we experience, our consciousness, well, that's our soul, and it happens to be related to a body. That's just false. There's just no way to believe that anymore and take science seriously. So we are bodies. Uh, we mm-hmm. are primarily bodies in some sense, and whatever our soul is, it ri- arises from our physical body and our physical brain. So that's that's the first problem. And then um, a second problem, this idea that like, oh, well, we get older and then we we want sex and that stuff's dirty. The problem with that is that like uh, the fact that we seek out sensual experience, we do that from the moment we're born. Mm -hmm. We need to be touched by our parents, which feels good in order to have secure attachment. 
we automatically go to our mother's nipple, which feels good and is warm and gives us milk. Like immediately we do that within a day of being born. And that's the same stuff. It's just that then we go through puberty and it, you know, it changes in what it's looking for, right? But it's the same uh, reward systems of the brain. It's it's the same chemicals being released. And if we want to say that it is good and beautiful that a baby wants to suckle at the mother's breast, that motherly and child love is an analog to God and creature love, which I think we do want to say, and almost every theologian over all time has wanted to say, then we can't simply say, but once you hit puberty, it's all bullshit. Or, or sinful and evil. <laughs> sinful and evil, right, <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, absolutely, Dan. I mean, be- beautifully put, it's, yeah. I mean, it, that's, that's a little screed there. I just went on a tear. No, I love it. I mean, yeah, it's so we are our bodies. We can't be separate from them. I remember uh, there was a book by Candace Pert called Molecules of Emotion. You know, there's no such thing as the mind. It's sort of the, it's, they call it today the mind body. If you can't separate it as you were talking about. And yeah, I mean, you know, and you bring up a good point about sexuality and sensuality. I think we do ourselves a disservice to think that that just means orgasm. And, and so right. even adults can miss out on the beautiful pleasure of you know, of, of cuddling and, and non-orgasmic uh, touch. And so th- there's so many nuances to this conversation, but I'm, I'm totally with you. Yeah. Or if you, you know, you have a, a three-year-old and they're so rambunctious, but finally they get tired and they cuddle with you on the couch for 20 minutes, you know, and they don't, and it's like skin to skin and you love having your child there. That right. is a bodily desire. And yeah. that's obviously not wicked, Right. So it's just, you just have to draw these lines that when you look at where the lines are drawn and you ask yourself, is this a biblical place to draw the line or is this a remnant of Victorian and 1950s American social norms? It sure as hell looks like it's the latter. (laughs) Well, you know, as uh, the Pentecostal tradition I was in, you know, remember, there's a lot of passages that say they greeted each other with a holy kiss. Right. Oh, yeah. And there was, wasn't there some... No, I believe it's actually a command yeah. in the text is greet each other with a holy kiss. Yes. We don't do that. No. So we're no. not following the text. And and I think <laughs> the Christians were um, criticized for, you know, having orgies. Like there was something very, from other kind of people that weren't Christian, they would look at sort of the, the feasts that they would have and greeting each other with a holy kiss and... Yeah, those Christians. What what's going on with them? Um, it was actually, but yeah. Listen, listen, I I have here again. It's like I these people. Like think about my Pentecostal tradition. They had plenty of verses to use in their arsenal to deaden our desires, cause us to fear them, and engage in a dualistic understanding of who we are. So like this stuff doesn't arise in a vacuum, right? Like so. There's yeah. verses, I remember, um, like uh, Galatians 5, 24, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, right? I mean, th- the way it talks about it, right? Romans 6, 11 through 13, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Like, I right. get it, right? These people aren't just making stuff up out of thin air, there are some verses when you look at them, uh, 
through sort of a, a traditional inerrant lens, it can scare the heck out of you. Yeah, the only thing that matters is spirit. I can see that. I, I can get that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's you can understand, especially in a low church context where people are not going to seminary uh, and they're not reading theologians of the last 2,000 years, them coming to that kind of sort of uh, common sense conclusion that, well, I guess the things my body wants are wicked. But of course, there's so there's a few things here. There are other ways to read those verses, of course. And you and I are not arguing for pure licentiousness. Right, the, right. the idea is not everybody just do whatever feels good all the time. That's we're we're not. That would be the far other end of the continuum. There's something in the middle, which is the desires of our body were created that way and are good, and we should not be slaves to them. But that doesn't mean that we should never listen to them at all. Huh. Like that's a silly either or. Yeah, Another yeah. thing that's going on is that, you know, I, w- I was just looking at the, what is the traditional argument for this? There is no argument for the body and its desires are inherently wicked, at least not an orthodox argument. That's Gnosticism, which you were right to point out. That's a heresy. That's one of the earliest heresies that the church fought. You can see Paul arguing against it all over the place in his letters. Uh, and so it's like the the traditional argument is actually that the body is good, but we should not be slaves to our passions. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have passions. Yeah, but I would say that there is a good traditional argument because I don't. I think the biblical authors could have been influenced by the culture at the time. I mean, they weren't sort of gung ho with you know it's good to feel desires and. I mean, even I didn't read. Um, I think the first John two. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. This verse used to scare the hell out of me. The world is yeah. passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God remains forever. I would read that. The church would read that. And I it would, I would, I would, listen, that influenced me to such an extent that I would not drink soda because I thought I was defiling the temple of the Holy Spirit. Hmm. Yeah. So all of this, they had good scriptural fodder, and it was all translated into no dancing, no kissing or sex before marriage, absolutely no masturbation, mandatory awkward side hugs, the six-inch six rule that young adults who were dating had to have, you know, the six-inch. Yeah, six yeah. Like, all this was translated into... Well, fear-based teachings about the body and its desires. Yeah, okay. I So, point taken. That's why I said low church, though, is because if you actually read the church fathers and, you know, prominent theologians, mm-hmm. like, no one would ever say the body's desires are inherently wicked. Like, no theologians say that. Uh, and, and in more Catholic and Orthodox and Episcopal right. Anglican traditions, you don't have that as much because they actually read those theologians when they go to seminary. Right, right. right. But yes, at a a folk level, this is a way of just taking the plain text and applying it to some really unquestioned assumptions. And I think we don't have time for it, but you could get into there just basically the difference between conservative and liberal personality types. And if you have a conservative personality, Mm -hmm. you're going to already kind of be leaning this way, and then you'll find those texts to say this. And if you have a liberal personality, you'll find texts to say the opposite. Yeah. And so, you know, that's its own thing but let let's talk about masturbation for a second because i have a little note mm. to bring oh. that in when oh, we yeah. when we talk about this this one cuz we're not going to do that as its own 
uh, item. Right, right. This is uh, – the <laughs> masturbation question is so interesting because it's – I can say now at 36, there – it's actually very clear to me. There is no passage in the Bible about masturbation. The only is Onan, Onan spilling his seed, <laughs> right. but that's clearly because he's trying to avoid getting someone pregnant, right? So that it's about pregnancy, is not about masturbation. There is Jesus saying, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, which we jokingly <laughs> used to talk about was about masturbation, but it's obviously not. And then there's just, uh, if you lust after a woman... Mm-hmm. You know, you've committed adultery with her. Yeah. But of course, an unmarried 13 year old cannot commit adultery. Um, they're not married. Uh, it, it seems to me now in reflecting that Jesus is pretty clearly talking to adults in that verse um, and is not talking to like barely pubescent teenagers uh, about having sexual fantasies at all. He's talking about lusting after a married woman, right? Or, or being married and lusting after another woman. He's not talking about if you're single and she's single and you lust after her, you've committed adultery. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, And so I now realize that the only thing really the Bible says about masturbation is if you're married or if someone else that you're attracted to is married, don't fantasize about them because Mm -hmm. that's like emotional adultery, which Mm -hmm. I would still say that's a very good rule. I should not (laughs) sit around fantasizing about women that are not my wife and how I might have sex with them, I'm all on board. That would be sinful. But that's not <laughs> masturbation. That's just a, that is a subset of it for adults in a particular station in life. And so this one is just incredible to me. How, yeah. you know, how, how much everybody obviously agrees that it's wrong, you know? Well, you gave your listeners plenty of a foundation to start masturbating right away. So thank you, Dan. I appreciate that. Um, but if listen, you are 17 <laughs> and listening to this show, man, yeah. go to town. Just stay away from weird porn. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, but listen, you're talking about it with contemporary lens. And I got to tell you, it's not always talked about in such a, a healthy manner. I remember. You don't say. I, I, listen, I was talking to a guy, <laughs> true story, and we were at a church picnic, and we, it was uh, many churches went there. And this guy, um, he, we got to talking, and I said, "Which church do you go to?" He says, "Well, I used to go to this church," and he gave the name of it. And I said, "Well, what happened?" And he said, "Well, you know, I I couldn't uh, I couldn't stop masturbating, so they kicked me out." So this was a Pentecostal what? church that if you continued to masturbate, you would go to hell, right? Wait, so, so they said you no one should masturbate at all. That's right. No matter how old they are. That's correct. That's correct. And, and what did they and how did they argue for this from the text or tradition? Or did they not? Well, uh, listen, if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away, right? It's better for you to yeah, enter it's life. it's a circular argument, though. It all, it all, it's, like, it's like when people use sexual immorality passages to say don't have sex before marriage. You actually have to argue that sexual immorality includes that. You can't just quote sexual immorality passages and assume that it includes that. Well, you're speaking too intelligently, Dan. Not everyone does that. <laughs> but the point but, is, yeah. there are churches who teach this kind of stuff. And the amount of... Sh- yeah. I mean, this guy got kicked out of the church. And it wasn't sort of like a, a voyeur kind of a exhibitionist. I mean, you know, he just... 
he, he couldn't stop. So he did it a couple of times a week, right? But I, believe it or not, I also met a guy who gouged out his eye. Literally, he, oh. t- he took that pass. Now, granted, he I was working in a psych ward at the time, but he took. Well, that- I think that's the only people who would do it, which is what's so sad about it. Yeah. So it, this stuff can be talked about in a very uh, unhealthy way, and you're you know you're talking about it in a in a healthier manner. <laughs> so yeah, I'm trying to provide. I'm I'm providing a, an alternative that I think is still quite orthodox. Um, this issue, this issue is so interesting. I mean, we need to move on for time, yeah. but uh, we didn't talk about purity culture, and we don't need to because there's. I've already done two episodes on purity culture. People could go back and find those, yeah, uh, if they want to talk more about specifically sex before marriage and the damage that that does, especially to Christian girls, uh, or no sex before marriage. Sorry, <laughs> uh, the culture around waiting until marriage at all costs. That's what I'm talking about. Right. That's uh, um, Linda Lay Klein's book, Pure. Did you yeah, talk? Linda K. Klein. And yeah. then also Tina Sellers. Uh, I interviewed somewhere around episode 11 or 12 or awesome. 15 or something like mm-hmm. that. So let's go to this uh, next item that is also bodily. Uh, and this one I think is really interesting. It is especially interesting from a therapeutic lens. So I'd love to get a bit more of your experience as a counselor. Emotions are not to be honored and listened to. Only God's truth should be valued. Hmm. Yeah. This is a, well, this is one that's certainly dear to my heart. But growing up in conservative churches, once again, my experience, there was definitely a bias against emotions. Uh, So first off, truth always took precedence over our irrational and unspiritual emotions. And secondly, which is probably one of the most disturbing, is that emotions, emotions were disowned and then projected onto demons. So for example, so for example, on their Okay, so I didn't grow I did not grow up in this world. So I grew up like California non-denominational evangelical. Uh I need you to unpack that a little bit more. Emotions were disowned and then put onto demons? Well, this is psychological talk, so I'm putting projection there. Sure. So for example, I give a story. Others are always better to flush this out. There was a guy yeah. who was in the throes of grief. He was unbearably distressed because his girlfriend broke up with him, right? Been there, done that, not fun. He was a wreck, so he decided to go to church for solace and community. But the people at the church could see he was a mess, so after service, they quickly gathered around him like bees and began to sting him with passion and bold prayers. I bind the spirit of sadness in the name of Jesus. You come out of him, you spirit of depression and anger. They thought by ridding him of those nasty varmints, emotions, he could be restored and free again. So what I mean is emotions were typically, they were just projected, they were demons. Like the cast out, the, let's cast out the spirit of lust, the spirit of pride, the spirit of anger, yeah. the spirit of sadness, the spirit of loneliness. And so in our, my Pentecostal tradition, that was so common. And they would pray that way. We bind this, we bind that, we cast you out this. So I'm not a fan of that. I think it still happens today. And uh, it's, it's, it gets into a deeper understanding of demons. But I think a lot of human experiences are projected onto these unseen entities rather than really accepted and owned. And no, this isn't a demon. This is a part of you. And how could you tend to that part of you that you know, uh, wants to get angry and lash out and, and hurt people. Like, 
it's much easier and I think better to look at it within yourself. Uh, and even Jesus talked about it's out of the heart that flows this, 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 and this. Uh, he didn't say out of demons flows, you know, anger, lust, murder, rage. Yeah, right. So this one uh, is really timely for me because I'm in school to become a psychologist right now. And we are talking about uh, this stuff and how a lot of times Christianity, especially Protestantism, especially low church Protestantism in America. So exactly what you're talking about uh, really has an aversion to mental health as mental health. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's not. Uh, psychosis, it's not, um, you don't have bipolar, you have demonic spirits. And there are a lot of reasons for that. It's very complicated. You know, there's incentives for people who are hyper spiritual to make everything spiritual and not physical mm -hmm. uh, or not you know, primarily found in brain structures. That is, can obviously be toxic because literally there are people, I'm sure, every year who kill themselves mm -hmm. because they're in a religious community that does not have space for them to go see a therapist or go see a psychiatrist and they don't get the help they need and they end up committing suicide. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, I mean, listen, this cuts really home because my brother was diagnosed with schizophrenia and man, I can't tell you how many times we prayed, fasted, trying to cast this demon out. We actually took him to another church that specialized in deliverance and their understanding was everyone had demons in them. And so they had paper bags under each chair. And at some point in the service, they would have everybody start vomiting demons. Um, but my brother was not helped at all in any of that. And like I said, he's in prison for the rest of his life. But yeah, it's just, it's sad how many people, you know. What's interesting, though, is some people get helped with, hmm. you know, with well, this frame. Yeah. With, you know, but it doesn't sure. justify it. But they're... Within that framework, within that understanding that their emotions are demons, you can, you know, I've been a part of deliverance sessions with that framework. And, you know, it's almost like this deeply cathartic experience. And, you know, ironically, right. people can shake the trauma out of them, so to speak. And, you know. Right. Yeah. Well, so this, let's see if we can do this in five minutes or so. But this is actually a fascinating, fascinating uh, point that you bring up. So one of the things I've been learning about is basically indigenous uh, and other kinds of like folk healing ceremonies. Mm -hmm. um, they like, they work, they work for people who grow up in them. And sometimes the best thing to do for someone uh, with mental problems, if they are American Indian or if they are an immigrant, either they're Hmong or they're, you know, something like that. They're mm -hmm. from Southeast Asia is to combine a Western psychologist and bring in a faith healer. Yeah. Shaman, and shamans. like they, they've, yeah, they've mm -hmm. tested this. Like mm -hmm. this is empirically verifiable that their, their results are better. If you bring in their folk healer, now that could be placebo effect. Um, but another, but a more interesting way to talk about it is it is how people are socialized to expect certain things. That's right. Mm -hmm. So if you are raised in an environment where you expect uh, bad emotions to be vomited out during prayer, <laughs> well, you might be able to make that a reality, right? Absolutely. Now, if you have schizophrenia, it's not going to work. But if you're just jealous, it might work. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and, and so it's like, or, you know, if, if you expect that 
when people lay hands on me at the end of an emotionally charged religious service, like you internalize this, that that's the time for me to work for this stuff to get worked out. It probably is going to work a lot of the times Um, because brains are weird and, and neuroplastic and positive thinking has effects on surgery outcomes. And, you know, that stuff's real. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's placebo effects and there's nocebo effects. And this is how some people make sense of sort of voodoo curses. If you believe that Mm. something's really going to harm you, it, that the brain, listen, the brain doesn't care what's true in the sense of some objective God reality. It's the social reality and milieu in which is it a part of that. For example, in, in, in Christian deliverance ministries, you have the people who cast out demons and which apparently it works for some, but then you have these sort of Neil Anderson and Ed Smith types of theophosic now transformational prayer ministry. They're like, yeah, it's all about lies. People believe you get rid of the lies. You get rid of the flies. We don't need to be. That's ta- basically cognitive behavioral therapy, right? We 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 don't. That's need what that is. <laughs> it, it really is. But well, it gets tricky because they do invite the the presence of God into, let's say, a kind of uh, sure. Memories. But I mean, yeah. you if you wanted to look at it from a Western lens, you'd say they are training their minds, their cognition, to not believe false things that they're telling themselves over and over again, <laughs> and then their behavior will change as a result. Now. For a person who's spiritual, they ought to bring God into that. I like right. that would be better for them to do that. That's what I'm saying. Uh, yeah, and and the research showed that there's no there's no uh, greater efficacy for Christian therapies, and you know, you know, which yeah. which brings in an interesting question of uh, anyway pluralism and and God and. You would figure if the creator of the universe was with some people and not others, there would be some demonstrable qualitative, quantitative effect. No, that is a really interesting question. And you don't find it. The more they've been replicating some of these benefits of religion, but they find them cross culturally across religious traditions. I think that's so interesting. And that's that goes to one of the reasons why I'm. So adamantly pluralist, but that's another conversation. For yes, another sir. Day. So uh, we have to, we got to get two through two more of these before we're done today. <laughs> um, <right>. Then, <laughs> although, uh, do we need to wrap that up? So look, emotions, there, there is, the alternative is like, your emotions are a part of your brain. They're a part of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, you know, you, you don't, they're not sinful. They are to be listened to. That's right. You have to deal with your emotions. You have to process them. Because if you don't, they will just come back to bite you later. Oh, yeah. There's plenty of, I mean, geez, Jesus was an emotional guy. Felt abandoned, got oh, yeah. angry, you know, got sad. Hey, where the hell are you guys? Can't you watch with me for one hour? What the heck? Uh, Jesus felt amazed. Right. So he, he felt the full gamut of the human experience. I mean, look at the psalmists. I mean, yeah, there's there's no real good uh, scriptural reason to not uh, hold uh, emotions on, on uh, uh, very valuable. But talking about the spirits, though, it, it does have passage. First of all, with all the just one small point before we end that. Uh, once sure. again, I'm always trying to empathize and understand and not consider them to be dumb or stupid. The biblical text talks about a spirit of prostitution, a spirit of impurity, a spirit of timidity in 2 Timothy 1.7, Romans 11, a spirit of stupor. 
So it, it does this, it has this kind of language so I can understand why Christians would hold to it. Like I said, it's not just arising out of a vacuum, but there's other ways to understand these passages and the cultural context and what these passages were formed. And so I understand, but that's not where I'm, I'm staying these days. Yeah. Okay. Uh, second to last, next item, and this is this is your bread and butter. Oh, we're talking about prayer. This is one of your books. Is aye, about prayer. Yay. So here's here's you out. You wrote a kind of a long thing. Here's how I summarized it: mm-hmm. uh, the idea of a prayer meter and prayer chains. Like you know, get more people praying about this. Basically, the more that people are praying, the greater the chance of God increasing God's love and healing or something in a situation. This is a toxic idea. Uh, I got to say, I don't know that I was ever really given this one. I think my, my non-denominational evangelicalism was like Mm -hmm. intellectual enough uh, and Mm -hmm. like, you know, academic enough that this didn't really creep in. I think, but I, I know that people know what you're talking about here and they get those email forwards (laughs) from their aunt and, uh, you know, but so like, what is, what was your experience with this kind of stuff? Yeah. So this gets into my book, Divine Echoes, Reconciling Prayer with the Uncontrolling Love of God. And it, it definitely transcends prayer meter and prayer chain as a part of it. But for me, the whole notion that right. petitionary prayer or the more prayer, the merrier is toxic. I think for two reasons. One, it portrays God as sort of, um, unloving, arbitrary, passive, and a cruel moral monster that that has the power to instantly heal, but simply, at least on some occasions, chooses not to, and other occasions decides to do so. And the second is that petitionary prayer and frantically getting people involved in prayer chains, uh, desperately praying to God to increase his love, contributes to more suffering in the world. And I know that's uh, it's a huge claim. I better back that up. But Yeah, it, back that up. Back that up. How am I going to do that? Um, so if people believe in all-powerful and controlling God is aware of the person or situations being prayed for, then it is easier for them, for us, to become passive bystanders. It, it's easy to believe, well, God is powerful. God has a plan. God is in control. And God is going to take care of it. All we have to do is get a certain amount of people to pray. Not really to do anything practically about the situation, but in essence, we're giving it to God. So that's exactly the kind of thinking some bystanders have when horrific violence is occurring. Well, there are plenty of people watching. Surely there are more competent people than me who are going to take care of it. I'm sure someone has called 911 by now. This is called the bystander effect. And so when people engage in petitionary prayer... In my view, God becomes the competent grand witness who diffuses human responsibility. The bystander effect is on full display. And so the problem is that it can have terrible consequences. Suffering increases. Death can be a result. If I believe the most loving and powerful divine agent is on the scene, there's a natural easing of the direness of the situation. If God is taking care of it, then perhaps we don't have to. We can lift up our prayers then go about our business as usual. But if God isn't taking care of it, and we're not taking care of it, then what is the outcome of the situation being prayed for? So keeping that in mind of thinking about praying for issues of poverty and homelessness or aftermath of mass shootings and sickness, you know, if if God, if we give it to God, but God's saying, hey guys, um, yeah, I know about this stuff and I've been wanting you guys to take care of it for the longest time now. You're my hands and feet. 
you guys go do it. But if we're not, and God's not, that to me is increasing uh, suffering in the world. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I, I think I buy that in general. I do think there is a bystander effect to people who would uh, attribute like really significant agency to prayer, right? So simply by prayer, uh, we can activate the yeah. strongest and most likely helper, uh, most capable helper in this situation. I think that's true. What I would love to see is a combination. Uh, I like to see prayerful action. Mm -hmm. That's kind of, to me, the gold standard. So I think prayer is super important. I think that intercessory prayer, petitionary prayer uh, is, uh, in the words of Carol Zaleski, a previous guest on this show, mm -hmm. that is sort of the most basic and most historical form of prayer. It's like it, the etymology of the word prayer comes from intercessory prayer, petitionary prayer. So yeah. that is like the most basic way that we pray. It's like a, it's a guttural calling out to God of a creature to creator. And I don't want to do away with that. But, I think that that's important, but I want to pair it yeah, with yeah, yeah. action, with a robust sense that we are God's viceroys in, on the earth. We are God's agents on the earth to enact the things we are praying about. Yes. And in fact, for me, prayer is what gives me sometimes in some cases the energy to then act and if i didn't pray if i didn't meditate i have less energy to act in the way that i should dan i'm, I'm with you i i do think the uh, i do quote carol in my book but it's um just because it's basic and sort of almost uh, innate within human beings to do such a thing doesn't mean it's necessarily effective in the sense of if i if I'm engaged in intercessory prayer, the whole point of petitionary prayer is that by engaging God and asking God a request, that God will increase God's love in some way, shape, or form. That is what petitionary prayer is about. That's a definition. Yeah. We're making petitions to God for God to act on our behalf. So, and you're saying God's always acting anyway, so we don't need to ask him to do it. Right? No, no. I'm this okay. this gets into the nuances. I think it's wise to pray, but the why we are praying and the God to whom we are praying to is important in that picture. So, sure. so in other words, I wouldn't encourage people, yeah, petition God, get listen. For this prayer, this kid has leukemia. My sense is God is looking for 49 people. Right now we have 45, but if we can get 49, <laughs> oh I think God I've is... never so I've never received an email like that. I don't I have no context no, for stuff like that. That's I get that. crazy. It it is, but it, it's when you think about prayer chains, there is this notion that the more prayers the right. better, right? It's sort of an implicit it's yeah. not explicitly taught like that. But I oh, and it's the kind of thing that that sort of pious like politicians and other leaders will say, we got through this. We know so many of you were praying for us, and we know that that was part of it. It's like, I now just read that as you're trying to sell me a used car, if you tell yeah, me something like that. But and so there's another power of petitionary prayer, is that when people know we're praying for them, I don't think our petitionary prayers are increasing God's unilateral, single-handed kind of love in their lives. Like... God, God, pour out your comfort on them as if God was waiting for us to just ask and would not do totally. so. 
But how fortunate that you had enough people to ask God on your behalf and these other poor people didn't have that, right? It's not like that. Yeah, but people – there's a psychology about petitionary prayer in that if I know you're praying for me, man, that comforts me, you know? Oh, for sure. Yeah, so that could be – Maybe one way to argue this with for Protestants is to be like, hey, do you think it's silly that Catholics think that they can pray their family members out of purgatory? If yes, then prayer chains are also silly. <laughs> Like, pretty straight line. Yeah. It's such a nuanced conversation. I do, in my book, I I hold to a way of praying petitionary prayers um, with God. It's not praying to God, but praying with God. It's believing God loves consistently and fairly. And um, it's really, God, what can we do together to bring shalom to this situation? Not, God, you do it. Yeah. You know, so in my yeah. in my understanding of what I call conspiring prayer, there there is a legitimacy to sharing our hearts with God. Just not there is yeah. there's a lot more here. Yeah, there is. Perhaps we will discuss this another time in more uh, detail. I I wonder if I am praying with God, even when I just ask God to have mercy on people. I I think that might be more of a with than a two. Yeah, that's beautiful. Uh, like if I, you know, I think it might be. I haven't thought of it that way, but I think that seems right. We have to get to one more here mm-hmm. uh, before we're out of time. Got it. Here's, the, here's our final one for the day. In the end times, creation is going to burn. Ooh. So who really cares about taking care of it now? I, ne- I We had to get to this one. I haven't done enough stuff on global warming yet. I've actually been having some trouble uh, locking down various guests for this. I plan to do a number of episodes on it in the future, mm. but I, here is my first chance to kind of address this. So um, it's not technically global warming, but it is. Yeah, sort of, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm certainly not. A, here's the funny thing. When I listed those 25, I'm not an expert in all of these topics for sure, but it definitely caused, right. caused me to right. say, yeah, I can't just say it. There needs to be a good rationale. So yeah, um, let's talk about so the statement is, and in the end times, creation is going to burn, so who really cares about taking care of it now? I was certainly raised with this one, for ah, sure. Ah, okay, so I'm not alone in some of these toxic uh, themes. No, no, are- I think this is, a, this is a very common talking point in evangelical circles. Yeah. yeah. So for me, why toxic, right? As the most sentient creatures on the earth who wield enormous power to neglect the care of our planet and live responsibly due to the belief that the afterlife is everything, and this is simply a fleeting test of some kind, is toxic. Because if yeah. we don't take care of it, then future generations will simply not exist. Or if they do exist, they could exist on a planet with scarce resources, dire living conditions, yeah. and without the beauty of various species that presently exist. Then my first sort of intro into this, I th- it, was, it was one of... Um, Brian McLaren's earliest books, and he said something about a, a particular animal. I forget what it was. And he said, listen, this might not be around when my kids or your kids grow up. And I thought to myself, oh, man, like it, it matters how we take care of the environment because I, I don't want to deprive my child of being able to witness the beauty of this creature living in the world. Granted, species are dying by an astronomically uh, a rate and have always sort of died off. Uh, but yeah, so that's kind well, of stuck they're, with me. They're dying off much more quickly now than they used to. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. Because of the effect of humans. Um, this one is also interesting because this, this is like a really bad reverse Pascal's wager, right? Like... Uh, 
if you're right that creation is going to burn anyway. So Pascal's wager is this, uh, for people who don't know, it's this, um, this argument that doesn't totally work. It's supposed to work to get people to have faith in God. So if you have faith in God and you're right, you get heaven. If you have faith in God and you're wrong, you just die and it's no big deal. If you don't have faith in God and you're right, you die and it's no big deal. And if you don't have faith in God and you're wrong, you get hell. So the idea being, look, all things being equal, you should believe in God because the consequences for being wrong mm-hmm. are far worse than, you know, all that kind of Too thing. Too long to be wrong. This is like a, yeah, <laughs> this one is the reverse of that. Mm. If you're right that creation is just going to burn anyway, well, you didn't have to drive an electric vehicle. Great. <laughs> you know, your life was slightly better for not being environmentally conscious. Right. If you're wrong, then you are part of basically an environmental holocaust mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that is going to affect billions of lives. Uh, and so it, it's this like really low payoff reverse Pascal wager. And my question is like, what's the evidence for this? Like, this is one view of the end times. It is not the most common view in Christian history. So you don't even have sort of like most Christians on your side. It is certainly not the view of other religions, which in theory could be right and you could be wrong. It's so unthinking and th- I get kind of fired yeah, up on this one, yeah. obviously. I don't know. Here again, I just think there's there's too much evidence to suggest that what happens down here is not as significant as the the afterlife. And I think, I don't know about not a majority of Christians in history believing this. You know, when you hold to the belief that what really matters is eternity rather than this small blip on your experience in this earth, on this earth, I mean, there's just sort of this implication that that this doesn't matter as much. And then but you have verses here again, people aren't making this stuff up, right? When you have a verse, I remember being in the Pentecostal church and so I would say a lot of Pentecostals believe this. Of course, today a lot of change is happening because listen, if you're not being missional as a church and taking this culture seriously when it comes to creation care, people aren't probably going to come to your church. I think the level of conscious awareness is getting so great. Even if you believe it's all going to burn up, to be missional, you will need to enter into people's experience and take this seriously. But I remember 2 Peter 3.10 constantly being thrown out, right? The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare, Right. And and then I also read that first John, the world is passing away along with his desires. And so there's a sense that, yeah, this is going to burn, baby, you know, because it must burn. Yeah. Because if there's going to be a place without no pain, no suffering, no sorrow or death, it ain't going to be this earth, especially when you got the law of thermodynamics, second law of thermodynamics, law of, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, I get that. But like a lot of people are still going to have to live here before that might happen. I guess that's what I'm saying is like, it might be true that the traditional uh, view is that whatever the afterlife is, it's not really connected with this universe. I'm fairly open to that because I don't understand 
how it could be connected to this one. If you have like lions laying down with lambs, for instance, <laughs> which I take to mean there's no competition for resources. And that's just the number one rule of this universe uh, for life is competing for the sun's resources. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I guess what I'm saying is the idea, it's all going to happen soon. Right. That is something that is in the text and people have always believed that, but it's, it's so poorly <laughs> supported by evidence because it hasn't happened. Uh, the particular end times view that is so common in a lot of these churches, mm-hmm. the premillennial dispensationalism left behind yeah. theology is like 150 years old. And you know, you, a lot of people, they're seeing their kids. They are, they know their kids are already alive in this world. They see st- species going extinct. They see increasing weather events. I mean, even if you thought God, Jesus was going to come back in 100 years, which would be actually not a safe bet given how long it's been since Jesus was here, mm-hmm. then you still got to think multiple generations are inheriting this planet. And it's just, I think it's a cop out. I'm, I get, again, I get really fired up on this one. It's, it just seems to me to be a clear window <laughs> into some biases and some really shitty thinking. Uh, uh, and all God's and all God's people say Amen. I mean, yeah. Listen, you're t- you're speaking too intelligently, Dan. <laughs> but yeah, a lot of people believe that. I remember wanting to kind of feed the homeless, and there's just this sense that it, what does it matter the practical things of people's lives or the planet if people if people's souls are not saved? This is fleeting. This is a blip. Eternity is what matters most. Get people saved. And that was a thinking, granted, that could be changing. I haven't been in the Pentecostal church uh, very recently. So it could be changing. There could be evolving consciousness when it comes to that. And maybe that's old school. But I I don't know. I mean, in college, we were a part of Campus Crusade for Christ. Um, This is early 2000s. And it became clear to me after a while that I called it a soul saved is, it, is the only real currency. That's the only dollar in the bank theology. And yeah. I was like, I reject this. This is <laughs> I don't think this is what God wants. This is not the God I know and worship. This is not how I understand Christianity to work. Uh, and that was really a, a main reason I stopped uh, participating in that in that group. So it, it's not gone. Yeah, I mean, that was yeah, yeah. 15 years ago, mm-hmm. 17 years ago. In a coastal city, you know. Sure, sure. Yeah, or it's college it's town, still uh, still prevalent, but I, I think you know there's alternatives. You know, it's uh, especially as I've gotten more into a, a processy, uh, open and relational way of understanding God and the world, and sort of this notion that even materiality is divine on some level, because without spirit, materiality wouldn't exist, because all things yeah. literally live and move and have its being in God. And just no, this notion of just being wise stewards, right? To wisely tend to it. We can see that we have a holy responsibility to make sure our children and our children's children do not suffer for our sins. And that's, that's a revelation that for me, that our choices matter for decades and even centuries into the future. So therefore, we should be creative in how we extend the good news of the gospel into the future for our future brothers and sisters and planet and creatures. and But, you know, there's some incongruence here with me because I still eat meat. Um, but 
You know, I'm yeah, I'm, I'm still yeah. occasionally I'll, I'll use a bottle of water, a plastic bottle of water, although that's pretty rare at this uh, stage of the game. But yeah, it's but well, it's know. one thing to have a, a goal, and it's another thing, and, and to not reach it. I think that's yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Orthodox Christianity. We're sinful, right? So yeah, yeah, we don't reach our goals. Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything you said. <laughs> one way I think about this is like, what are the chances? That a universe where it takes light billions of years to go to go across it mm-hmm. from one end to the other, uh, that that entire universe is going to go out of existence in the next 40 years because of actions taken on planet Earth, according to God. Like, hmm. I can't make any sense of that. That just... The only reason you believe that is because you believe of other a bunch of other things that make you have to believe that. But that's not really a believable proposition by itself. And you'd have to have so much faith in your interpretation of the biblical text and its inerrancy to make that jump. I can't even get anywhere near that jump. So that leaves me with whatever comes next, mm-hmm. whatever the good future of the eschaton is where justice is served – which I have hope in as a Christian, Mm -hmm. uh, that's not coming anytime soon. And people are going to be on this planet for quite a while, probably until they can't anymore. And so I have a responsibility here to do my part. Uh, A lot of my part is probably voting, frankly. Mm -hmm. Um, And Mm -hmm. some of it is personal decisions that I make and my own fossil fuel consumption and stuff like that. Um, But like the chances that it all blow, I mean, just earth, the entire universe you're saying there'll be a reverse big bang in the next 40 years like no one no one actually thinks through the consequences of that like astrophysically and i think that that's why astrophysicists have a hard time being christians frankly uh, and cosmologists and whatnot is like what the hell are you guys talking about um anyway that was a little bit of a well yeah a but but there. it does come down to an understanding of god's role in the eschaton I mean, if you're not an open and relational or processed kind of person, God is going to, you know, flick a switch. God is going to use his power unilaterally in such a way I can't even describe this kind of new world with streets paved as gold. But, you know, uh, so a lot of people hold to that. You know, listen, Dan, it's a mystery. I don't know how we're going to get there, but God's going to have to do it. I mean... Well, I'm... So... I am an open relational theist. I'm with you on this. But even if I wasn't, Mm -hmm. I would still not believe that God was going to unilaterally do that soon, given 14 billion year history of the universe that is so massive I can't comprehend it, (laughs) that that entire thing is just going to zap out of existence and some new thing is going to come because of what happened on Earth. One of one planet... Mm -hmm. We're in a universe of billions of galaxies that each have billions of stars. Right. That just doesn't make sense. Even if you think God can unilaterally do it. Like, that is... Yeah. That is a great... If you think about that, that's a crazy belief. It's also crazy, and I've I've wrestled with some open relational theologians on this. I mean, how is it going to get to a point where there is no more pain, suffering, sorrow, death, no sin? I Even from a process or a relational standpoint... How will there be a world where there's no flesh-eating bacteria um, or ticks right. or mosquitoes or li- – like, to me, that's also 
it's it suspends my, I I can't understand how that's I thought maybe because there's already been five mass extinctions maybe there's another one everything starts over again another billion of year and then there's aliens that come they give us technology with I don't know. It's still crazy to even think through a process and relational lens how that will come about, too. I think they're both pretty wild. Yeah. I don't think that we – I mean, it is crazy. <laughs> I, I tend to think of it as it is actually a different universe. I mean, it is not – that there is – it may be something about dimensions. Mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, I don't know. Uh, I I can't understand it. I don't think I have to understand it to be a Christian. I mean, it's, I will say that these difficulties, the difficulties of imagining the eschaton Mm -hmm. do reduce my confidence in the specifics of Christianity. Mm -hmm. They do. If I'm honest, it reduces my confidence, but I think that might be fine because that's just theological and intellectual humility Mm -hmm. doing its thing. I think that it's probably appropriate that my confidence is reduced and then, and that none, nonetheless, my job as a Christian is to live like Christ. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have a hope that the God that I experience and billions of other people experience, uh, I believe, that that God has some way of making things right. <laughs> you know, if it's anything like creating a universe, then I ought to expect that I won't understand it very well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's a very different move, by the way, than what like Calvinists say, which is, well, this seems really evil, but it must be good in God's sense. That's a that's a moral mm. appeal to mystery. I, my appeal to mystery is not a moral one. It is appealing to the mystery of what it takes to create universes, and that seems pretty freaking reasonable to me. That I should not know what it takes to create universes. That's uh, like an empirical right, thing. Right, right, right. I'm with you. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, we're we're over time now, and we're not going to solve. This is I mean, this is a very <laughs> funny place to end. Uh, that's what happens when you get a couple of guys together who have some similar thoughts. So we didn't get to all of these. Um, perhaps what we'll do, uh, Mark, if you're down is later, we'll record a, a shorter patron only episode and hit a couple more of these. Um, well, when the new, that would be when fun. the uh, new book comes out, which hopefully it will be in the spring, why don't we uh, get together uh, then? And um, I actually talk about uh, toxic, this material as well in there. Okay, cool. Yeah, that sounds good. Cool. I'll look forward to checking that out. And uh, in the notes here for listeners, I'm going to have a link to your Facebook post, which has this image of all 25 of the items, a link to uh, your books and that deconversion article that you're going to send me that I asked you for. Sounds great. Yeah. Thank you so and much. And I guess we should say, everyone have a good day and and uh, good luck finding less toxic uh, <laughs> forms of Christianity. <laughs> to live into that was what's such a half-assed benediction there (laughs) good thing i'm not a pastor well thanks for your time listen it's been awesome dan thank you so much for this time been a very rich conversation and the the journey continues thanks to scott sanjemi for editing the conversation with mark today Make sure that you join the Patreon if you want to have access to those exclusive episodes. Also, if you want to join the Facebook group, which is for patrons only uh, and is a really cool community. So patreon.com slash Dan Koch or you have permission pod.com. Click become a patron. We'll see you guys next week. Thank you so much. Thank you.